If you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're picking it up in verse 1. And as always, we'll, we'll have Bibles uh, in the back that you can always pick up and grab or out in the lobby. But I'd encourage you to have one with you or your phone or tablet or something to look at this text as we go through it uh, this morning. Now, the book of Mark is broken up into three major acts or three sections, okay? Act one, the first act in Mark, all took place in Galilee. And in those chapters, we learned about who this Jesus really is. In the first act, while he's ministering there in Galilee, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And we start to learn that he is also the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the people have been waiting to come and rescue them. Them. So that's Act 1. Then Act 2 shifts to Jesus and his disciples. They're now on the way to Jerusalem. And in Act 2, they're on the way. Jesus is teaching his disciples, telling them that he is going to be killed in Jerusalem. And yet in Act 2, there's this struggle with the disciples to really understand how Jesus is going to become the Messiah. How can he die and yet also uh, be the rescuer they've been waiting for? And now we get to Act Three, the third and final act, the third and final section in Mark, and this will all primarily now take place in Jerusalem, and this is all really kind of in that last week of Jesus' life uh, leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And in this final act, we finally see how Jesus does become the Messiah, how he does save his people. And I've titled this sermon... Uh, the king approaches, the king approaches, because the final week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection, it all starts here uh, with, with the king approaching the city. And in, in here in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we are nearing the end of Jesus's time before his death and resurrection. 
But we still have about a third of the book remaining in Mark, uh, which should tell you what John Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, how important they thought this last week of Jesus's time here on earth was before he was killed and resurrected. And so we still have a third of the book left, which is really all the last week of Jesus's life. And just FYI, to give you guys the preaching plan, the preaching schedule, we will keep preaching through Mark and we will likely finish uh, by December. Uh, We will then have an Advent series, a series leading up to Christmas. And then in January, we're going to start a new book, uh, probably Old Testament and probably Esther. Uh, But no one hold me to that. I reserve the right to change my mind leading up to that. But that's the preaching plan. So we're going to finish the gospel according to Mark here by December. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather as your people, uh, to praise your name, uh, to take our eyes off of ourselves, to set our eyes on you, and behold your glory and your goodness and your faithfulness. And so, Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of that, that this, as we preach, Lord, your word, that this would be a worshipful experience for us, that you would not only, uh, Lord, inform our minds, but that you would transform our hearts. Um, Lord, I do, Lord, I ask for uh, the families and all those affected with uh, the recent shootings, God, we ask that you would provide comfort to them, that you would raise up your people, to show the love of Christ to those that are hurting. Lord, we ask, Lord, that as we come before your word today, that we would see and behold your glory and your goodness. We love you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Act 3 in Mark. In this passage that we're in now, in Mark 11, starting in verse 1, many Bible editors have called this the triumphal entry. Okay, the triumphal entry. It's oftentimes the passage that people preach or talk about on Palm Sunday. Uh, I had hoped, I was wishing that that we were going to line this up perfectly with Palm Sunday, and I was just off by a few months, uh, but we were close. Okay, we were close. But this is the passage, right? And, and this is an important passage because we see it appear in all all the gospel accounts, okay? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the triumphal entry is included in all those accounts, and that, that does not happen with many events, so this should be signaling to us that this is an important, an important event uh, in the life of Jesus. So let's watch how our king approaches the city of Jerusalem. And I think by doing so, by watching how our king approaches, I think we'll learn a little bit about how we should approach our king. Because we have to understand how God approaches us before we can start to understand how we approach God. So let's look at Mark 11, verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, or some others uh, pronounce it Bethage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. 
Okay, Jesus and his disciples are now approaching Jerusalem, and they come to two towns that are just outside of Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethpage. Now, Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, and it is where Jesus will spend some of his evenings in this final week while he's in Jerusalem. And so you can see I have got a couple of slides here. Let's, let's look at this first slide. I wanted it to show up a little bit better, so I apologize. I realize people in the back probably can't see it at all. Uh, but they're coming kind of down here from the road from Jer- Jericho, and they're traveling through Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, going through Bethpage, and then you see Jerusalem there up at uh, the top. Uh, let's look at the next slide then, too. Okay, this is a, a modern-day aerial view. Okay, so we have Bethany down here at the bottom, traveling up Bethpage, and then the two circles above that are the Mount of Olives, which now in modern day there's a hotel there and some other churches, but that's the Mount of Olives, which is up elevated on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, and you can see the the Dome of the Rock, which is where uh, the temple was, and so if you were up elevated on the Mount of Olives, you could see the city, you could see uh, Jerusalem, and I apologize, I know that's not showing up to you guys uh, uh, very well. Okay, um, But they're approaching Jerusalem. Okay, you can kind of picture this. They're approaching Jerusalem. They're coming to these towns that are a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus tells two of his disciples to go ahead of them and get a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Now, at first read, this can seem a little strange because uh, it seems like Jesus is telling them to go steal a donkey. That's sort of how you could read it, right? I mean, he's like, yeah, just go up. I mean, don't worry about it. Just untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks, just say the Lord has need of it, right? It'll be okay. But that's, that's not what's happening here, okay? Jesus, through either, his, uh, through either making previous arrangements or through him just being an all-knowing and sovereign God, has made sure that a colt of a donkey would be available for them. Now, why, why a donkey, you might ask? That seems like a strange pick. Uh, Well, you see, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah had spoken in Zechariah 9, verse 9. We'll have that verse here up on the screen. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so even then, if you trace back even further in the Bible, when you look at the book of Genesis, uh, uh, in Genesis, Jacob is blessing his sons, and he blesses Judah and says that Judah, the Messiah, is going to come through the line of Judah, which Jesus uh, did, which is why we call Jesus the Lion of Judah. And so in Genesis 49... Verses 10 and 11, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt, there's that donkey and that colt again, right? To the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You see, the Jewish people knew their Torah very well. They knew the prophecy very well. And so they had this image in their head of a coming king, a coming Messiah, a coming rescuer that would enter into Jerusalem while riding a donkey. 
And this is, so this is not a subtle gesture by Jesus. This is not just a random pick of, of animals that he could have, he could have grabbed, right? This is, this is act three. I mean, this is the final week leading up to his death and resurrection, fulfilling what he came to earth to do. You remember, so, so he's not being subtle about this. He's proclaiming, hey, I know in your heads and your minds you're waiting for this Messiah to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is getting a donkey to fulfill that prophecy. You remember earlier in the book of Mark when he would heal someone or cast out a demon or something like that, he would tell them to be, be quiet, like be silent, like don't go tell because he didn't want to be known yet as the Messiah. It was not his time. But now is his time, all right? This is act three. This is the final week. He knows that him coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's going to incite the religious leaders against him. It's going to stir up their anger and jealousy against him. And yet he knows that even their hatred of him is going to be used to carry out his plan for salvation. And so he tells two disciples to go ahead of him to get a donkey. And what happens? Look back at Mark. What happens? Exactly what he said would happen, happens. Verse 2. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and what happens? What he said would happen, happens. And they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them, Jesus had said, and they let them go. Get this, church. Jesus knew exactly what his disciples would encounter. Now, those two disciples maybe didn't completely understand the why behind it yet. But Jesus knew exactly what they would encounter. What a, what a beautiful truth this is for us as well, church. That Jesus knows exactly what we will encounter. I mean, all throughout the approach of our King Jesus, we see that he is completely in control. He is sovereign. Nothing is spinning out of control. This is plan A for the salvation of God's people. This is not getting away from him. This is not getting out of control. He is completely in control, and he is completely omniscient, a fancy way of saying he is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. Jesus knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He's been telling us for weeks that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. He knows. He's all-knowing. He knew, he even knew back in Genesis that he was going to come into the world through the line of Judah. He knew back in the days of Zechariah that he was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He knew when the people of Israel were rescued from Egypt that he was going to be their sacrificial lamb. He knew when the instructions for the tabernacle were given that he would one day tabernacle with his people. He knew when his presence filled the temple that one day when he was crucified, the temple curtain would be torn in two so that his presence could fill his people. And yet, while God is all-knowing, he's not just all-knowing like a fortune teller would be. He's not just predicting the future and getting right on some things. He, yes, is all-knowing, but he's also completely sovereign. He's completely in control of all things. 
And no person, no enemy, no power can thwart his plan. Jesus knew exactly what his two disciples would encounter, even with a small detail, like going ahead and getting a donkey. I mean, someone could have easily not allowed them to take the donkey, right? There might not have been a donkey there, but God's plans cannot be stopped. Look back at verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, the word for the Lord, it can sometimes mean just simply sir or master, but it can also mean something much stronger, which this context does suggest. You see, the word for Lord can also mean the sovereign one, the sovereign one. And so it is likely that Jesus tells them to respond with the sovereign one requires the donkey. The king who approaches us and calls us, he is an all-knowing king, and he is completely sovereign. I think we sometimes, we have a false belief that God is out of touch with what is going on in the world and what is going on with us. I think we falsely believe that God is like our parents or, or our grandparents or someone like that who, like, the, he's just an, an out-of-touch parent, maybe. Like, he doesn't really understand what we're dealing with in 2019. He doesn't really understand uh, the things that I'm going through right now. But church, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Psalm 139 Verses 2 and 4, it says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Our king approaches us not as one who doesn't know or understand. Our king approaches us not as one who has no power or control. He is acquainted with all our ways. His eyes are in every place. And, and he knows exactly what we will encounter tomorrow and next week and next month, and next year. Growing up, when, when dad was in seminary, there were definitely seasons of our family life where money was very, very tight. And any extra bill or extra expense had the uh, chance of becoming a pretty stressful situation for us financially. But there's something that I remember that stood out uh, uh, from my mom. I think I sort of asked permission, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and share it, okay? Because uh, I remember my mom's heart in those times, okay? So if a car broke down, my mom would say crazy things like this. She would say, I guess the Lord knows that the mechanic needs the money more than we do. Like, who says stuff like that? That's crazy, right? Like, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I want it to be the first thing that comes to my mind, but that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. When something breaks down or some stress happens or some financial strain occurs, like, I'm ready to, like, whine and complain and cry out to God about it and throw a pity party. 
But when we know and trust that our God is all-knowing and that He is completely sovereign, then we can rest in those times. We can rest knowing that the Lord knows. The Lord knows. There were probably a lot of mechanics that just needed our money more than we did. (laughs) The Lord knows. And He is absolutely sovereign. And this can provide us rest from always trying to know the why behind everything. And we can rest from trying to have to control every little thing in our life. Because if you live long enough, you'll realize that that control is really a delusion. You can't control every little thing in your life. We can rest that God goes before us and behind us. I love this verse. God speaking to his people in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Sorry, Isaiah 52. Yes, correct. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Leave that up for a little bit, okay? You shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, right? So pretty much saying, you shall not panic, don't panic. Don't get frazzled like Grant does, right? Like, like, don't panic. Calm down. The Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He's going to go before you, and he's going to go behind you. This is, this is like when uh, Britt and I take all the four boys, our four boys, out to a public place, uh, and I become very anxious about that, especially I get claustrophobic in places like the Children's Museum, things like that, right? So we're in the Children's Museum, we're like trying to keep watch over the kids. Usually if we're going through a crowd, one of us will kind of lead the way and one of us will be in the back to make sure there's no stragglers or anyone wandering off, right? Now my sister, when she was at the Children's Museum one, one uh, day, uh, there was a dad who I think screamed out what I usually am feeling on the inside. She said she saw a dad with all these kids trying to control them, and he yells out to them, maximum awareness, people, maximum awareness. <laughs> now, I don't think that really works. That hasn't worked with our kids. They usually just laugh, but that's how I feel on the inside, right? Like, Maximum awareness, people, okay? But listen, like, why, why do we do that, right? We want to protect our kids. We want to make sure what they're walking into has been uh, uh, surveyed and watched. We want to make sure where they're coming from is safe, right? Our God goes before us, and our God goes behind us. The reason you have to understand the approach of King Jesus is that you have to understand how God approached us before you can start to understand how to approach God. Jesus has gone before us and behind us. When we are prone to panic, we should instead go to prayer. These two disciples, they could have panicked about the situation. I might have panicked about the situation. Like, well, what if a donkey's not there? What if we go and there's not a donkey there? What if there is a donkey there and they don't let us take the donkey? What if I get thrown in jail for this? Like, what if we are the cause of a prophecy not being fulfilled, right? They could have been panicked. They could have been fearful about what was going to happen. But Jesus knew exactly what his disciples would encounter. And he goes before us and he goes behind us. 
So let me say that again, church. He knows exactly what his disciples will encounter. He knows exactly what his disciples will encounter. You shall not panic because the Lord goes before you and behind you. Okay, here we have Jesus, the all-knowing, completely sovereign king. Let's, let's see if he approaches the city like the other political and religious leaders approach cities. Because people often, I mean, don't you guys hear that argument, right? That, that all religions are just the same. You're just worshiping the same God. Jesus is just another teacher or prophet, right? Like what's so unique about Jesus? It seems like he's just another good teacher and things like this, okay? Uh, uh, so we need to see, well, is there anything unique about Jesus? Does Jesus approach the city like other religious leaders and, and such have? For, for example, in the year 630, Muhammad approached Mecca on a war horse. Not a donkey, on a war horse. He entered on a war horse surrounded with 10,000 soldiers. If people greeted him well and converted, they were accepted into his movement. If they rejected him, they were killed or enslaved. And Muhammad conquered Mecca and took over as the religious and political and military leader. So let's, let's see if Jesus enters the same way. Look at Mark 11, verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, the donkey colt is brought to Jesus. No war horse, no war horse, no, no sword drawn, right? The donkey is brought to Jesus. And let's, let's look at a picture in case you forget uh, what a donkey looks like, right? All right, there's a donkey, okay? And let's, I think we got another donkey on there too. Another donkey, okay, not a war horse, right? And people put their cloaks on the donkey for him to sit on, and they spread their cloaks on the road. This was sort of like them giving him the red carpet treatment, okay? You can envision maybe some of our award shows or things, and people roll out the red carpet. This was their way of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. And they took uh, leafy branches, likely these were palm branches, and they waved them, they put them on the road as well. Now, palm branches symbolized victory and peace. They symbolized victory and peace, and they were often connected with prominent Jewish victories. And so they were waved, you know, much like we would wave the American flag. However, uh, different from the flag, it, it wasn't disrespectful to also then place those branches on the ground to be a part of that red carpet treatment for the king or whoever they're honoring to walk across. So you can picture you can picture this scene. And let's show the next picture here, Alyssa. Now, this was not an actual picture from that actual day, okay, just to clarify. Uh, but this would be a similar route that everyone, you know, on Palm Sunday, they kind of reenact this uh, trip into Jerusalem. And so you can imagine the crowds, palm branches, laying their cloaks down, Jesus coming in on a donkey. And look what they were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna! which means save. It's short for Lord, save us. 
Save us. Save us, Lord. And they shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now some of what they were shouting, it comes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 113 through 118 are called the Hallel Psalms, which are psalms of praise that would often be shouted or sung back and forth to one another as people approached Jerusalem for the Passover or for another festival. And so these would, it would be a back and forth, a shouting and singing to, the, to one another as they traveled on the road. Psalm 118, 25 and 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so we're going we're gonna to try to do something uh, real quick here to kind of help us set the scene, okay? So this is where we're going to need some uh, participation from you guys, okay? Uh, because remember, they were singing and shouting this back and forth to one another. So we are going to do that this morning, okay? So this side over here, we are going to start. We're going to have the words up on the screen. Uh, so this will be a walkthrough. You guys are going to shout, Hosanna! Okay, now you're really going to have to shout it out. This side has dad, so they're at, they got an unfair advantage, all right? So you're going to shout Hosanna. And then this side, I'm going to point to you, and you're going to shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we're going to go back to this side. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And then we'll go back to you guys. Hosanna in the highest. Do you guys think we can do this? We'll try it. Okay. All right. So we're going to start over here with you guys. Let's go. Okay. That was okay. But let's try to, let's, let's, let's get a little bit more life. Okay. This isn't a funeral. All right. It's going to be okay. You guys can do this. All right. Let's go. Here we go. All right, one more time. Let's do it. All right, let's make it really good. Here we go. All right, good job. You guys can start to feel maybe a little bit. You can start to hear those sounds, what this would sound like by the crowd shouting and singing this as Jesus is coming in on a donkey. Now look a little closer at this verse in Mark and see that they say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now listen, that is not... That's not totally wrong because we know that Jesus is in the line of David, so that is a correct thing to shout and to sing. But Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God. Ever since Jesus, right, was walking on earth, he preached that the kingdom of God was at hand. And so in these shouts, we can see that the crowd, they, they sort of get it, but not really. They get it kind of, okay? They get it kind of. They are honoring him as the Messiah and the Savior. They're giving him the red carpet treatment, right? They're crying out for Jesus to save him. They're certainly, you know, exalting and, and, and honoring him. But what we see when they cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of David, 
And what we see when later in the week a crowd will cry out, crucify him, we see that they don't understand what they need Jesus to save them from. They are crying out for Jesus to save them from the Romans. They're tired of losing their influence in politics and in the military. They want to be back in control of those things. They want Jesus to enter Jerusalem like Muhammad did in Mecca. They want him to overthrow the Romans. They want to be put back in control. But what did they ultimately need to be saved from? What did the angel tell Joseph before Jesus was born when Joseph was stressing out about how his fiance was a virgin and pregnant and kind of dealing with all that, right? That's a lot to deal with. An angel comes and talks to Joseph and the angel said in Matthew 1, 21, Matthew 1, 21, and Alyssa, just leave this verse up for a while, okay? The angel said, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from, and that's a little, my contacts are a little blurry, save his people from the Romans. Is that what it says? Save his people from their political irrelevance. Save his people from their military weakness. Save his people from uh, being mocked by the popular cultural opinion of the day. He will save his people. Uh, he will save his people's reputation. He will save his people from their financial strains. Is that what it says? You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their hardships. He will save his people from their suffering. It says he will save his people from their sins. You see, the reason you sometimes don't know how to approach God is because you don't understand how God has approached you. Because you see, we often cry out for Jesus to save us from our hardships, to save us from our hurt, to save us from our financial concerns, to save us from our broken relationships and the wounds that they, it has left, to save us from our physical trials. And let me tell you, church, he does answer those prayers, but he ultimately came to save us from our sins, to save us from our pride. God loved you so much that he humbled himself by putting on human flesh, creator became creation. And he lived a perfect life of obedience. He was the only righteous one who ever lived. He was the good and faithful servant that we fail to be. And he approached Jerusalem not surrounded by soldiers or a war, ha a war horse, but by, with fishermen and a donkey. Because he came to give up his life, to be killed in our place, to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sin, so that we might dwell with God once again. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he said he is. And he has been victorious on our behalf. He has saved us from Satan's sin and death. 
He might save us from a lot of things, but he ultimately came to save us from our sin. And he has shown us by his example that in his kingdom, humility is the pathway to victory. Humility is the pathway to victory in the kingdom of Jesus. The path of pride, okay, let me explain a little bit. The path of pride and living a prideful life was the way we walked before we started following Jesus. Like, even if we lived as good and moral people, even if we were good religious people, we lived that way for our own glory and for our own reputation. But the pathway of pride only leads to death and defeat. Jesus showed us by his example that unlike the kingdoms of the world, in his kingdom, under his rule and reign, the pathway of humility is what leads to victory and to life. And I'm going to let God's word just speak for itself and read a few verses we'll have on the screen for you. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Last one, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And church, when we come upon a decision to make or we are faced with a trial and we're trying to figure out how to respond, how do we approach this thing in life? We should ask ourselves, which decision puts me on the pathway of pride and which is going to put me on the pathway of humility? Followers of Jesus find the path of humility, but unfortunately, it's usually after much hardship and suffering. You see, when we're on the pathway of pride, when we're living for our own glory and our own fame, uh, it often feels like God is opposing us. And that's because He is. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does it feel like God's opposing me? He is, but he's not opposing you to be mean or to be cruel to you. Him opposing you is actually his grace to you to not allow you to continue to go down the pathway of pride. And he knows it leads to death and defeat. He's lovingly opposing you to humble you to save you from your sin, to help you follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who has shown us it's the pathway of humility that will lead to life, that will lead to victory. Church, cry out to Jesus to save you. May your prayers constantly be that of Hosanna, but know that he has ultimately come to save you from your sin to save you from your pride, which is really at the root of most of our sin. 
He's come to save you and show you that in his kingdom, the path of humility is what will lead to life and victory for you. The scene has been set, right? Jesus is on the donkey. He's fulfilling what the Messiah would ride on. The crowds are shouting praise, shouting for salvation. They're they're, they're singing uh, Psalm 118. The red carpet has been rolled out. It's all building up to this moment, right? You can envision the scene. The crowd's there singing, shouting, palm branches going, red carpet going. Jesus is riding up like the king is here. The king is approaching. It's time, it's time. Look at Mark 11 verse 11. Mark 11, verse 11. It's all building to this point, and it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Kind of, kind of anticlimactic there, right? I mean, a big entrance, like, right, is he, is he going to overthrow the Romans? Is he going to take the throne? Like, what's going to happen? Like, no, he goes to the temple. He looks around. He sees what time it is. And he goes back to Bethany. <laughs> what, what's going on here? What's going on here? To us, this might seem like a little bit of a letdown. He gets into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. Suddenly now the crowds are all gone. It's late. And he just goes back to Bethany to go to bed. But what we can't miss here is where his approach to the city starts and where it ends because both are very significant. His approach starts at the Mount of Olives. And for us, that might not be a very significant thing. We just kind of read over that like, great, okay, starts at the Mount of Olives, finishes at the temple. I don't really see the significance of that. But listen, this is a big deal because approximately 500 years before this, in the year 586 B.C., God gave a vision to the prophet Ezekiel. And this was during the time when God exiled his people to Babylon and the Babylonians came and destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the wall. And during that time, Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. So Ezekiel 11, verse 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, the mountain that is on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. So here's the significance from where the approach of Jesus starts and where it finishes. In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple and went and hovered, and and Ezekiel saw it by the Mount of Olives. When Jesus approached Jerusalem on a donkey, the glory of God returned. In Jesus Christ, the glory of God has been brought near. Ever since Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden because of their sin, humanity has been longing to be back in the presence of the glory of God. 
And God provided some temporary means by which his glory could dwell with his people through the tabernacle and through the temple. But church, now something even better than those is here. Jesus is the true and better temple. He called himself the temple. Speaking of himself in John 2 verse 19, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And when Jesus was then crushed for our iniquity and accomplished salvation on our behalf, the temple curtain was torn in two so that the people of God could once again dwell in the presence of our glorious God. In Christ, the glory of God has been brought near. It's the glory that we've been longing for. It's the glory that our soul aches for. However, in our sin, we could not approach the glory of God or else the glory of God would have destroyed us. We were helpless and we were hopeless in our sin. But God, but God, our great God approached us and he made a way for us to enter his glory once again. He made a way for us to go from enemies of the kingdom to citizens of the kingdom. He made a way for us to go from an orphan to a son and daughter of the king. Listen, church, our king approaches each and every one of us this morning. He's an all-knowing, completely sovereign and entirely good king that we can trust with our lives, with completely everything, hand over to him, all that we have, all that we are. He's a saving king who doesn't always fit into our theological boxes and he carries out his purposes in many ways that that we don't understand why he did it that way. But we know that while he even might might bring pain upon us, We know that it is ultimately for our good, that it is ultimately he is a king that is rescuing us and saving us from our sin. He saves us from our pride and helps us find the path of humility that leads to life and victory. He's a king of a kingdom that is better than any other kingdom we could imagine here on earth. Because it is in his kingdom that we can once again dwell in the presence of the glory of God. In Jesus Christ, the glory of God has been brought near. Let's pray.